Your wife will let you do that too. Thank you, brother. Thank you, I appreciate that. It is great to be with you. Great to be with uh, with your pastor. I've actually gotten to know your pastor pretty well over this last semester because he was my student. I don't know if you knew that, but I teach a class, just one class a year in the fall for Golden Gate Seminary. And uh, this year it was ministry leadership. Next year it'll be preaching. So yeah, that's where the pressure is whenever you teach preaching. Um, but uh, but you'd be pleased to know your pastor got an A in leadership, okay? And he got an easy A. It wasn't even a close A. He did really, really well. It's been a joy to get to know uh, Michael. And, and wonderful to, to uh, follow your church and learn about what God is doing here and what God will do here and the commitment that you all have made. Uh, thank you for making the commitment. Many of you came from Terrace Heights to be here to help found this church. And uh, that is a really significant and important thing. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, the Yakima area was an area that, uh, that I knew about when I was a little boy. I was born in Idaho, Grangeville, Idaho, grew up in Montana. But my mom grew up in northeast Oregon in Cove, a little town of Cove near LaGrande. And her family were all fruit pickers. They were very poor. Her, grand, her dad was a fruit picker. She was a fruit picker. They came to Yakima and picked apples. I don't know if they picked the cherries here or not, but my mom, uh, her record was a thousand pounds of cherries with the stems on in one day. A thousand pounds. She picked 1,600 pounds when you didn't have to worry about the stems and whatnot, but a thousand pounds. And I remember when I was a little boy coming to Yakima, I was probably five years of age and my memory's vague, but what I remember is our vacation was coming to visit our grandparents who were picking the apple harvest in Yakima, and the car broke down. So we stayed here a little longer than we intended, and my mom and dad picked apples to earn the money to fix the car, and it was an expensive fix. It was like 400 and some dollars. We're talking the mid-60s. And, uh, and I stayed in that little cabin that my grandparents stayed in. And then my mom spent her fourth grade year in, in Yakima, not in Moxie, but in Yakima, and got tuberculosis. <laughs> and I knew my mom had TB, and she was basically quarantined her fifth grade year. It was when the convention was here last year, she said, Yakima is where I got tuberculosis. I didn't know that, you know, so that was my, that's my experience with Yakima. But, uh, but anyway, it's, it is great to be with you, a joy to be with you. And let me tell you just a little bit about uh, the Northwest Baptist Convention. Some of you know quite a bit, some of you may know nothing, but we are a convention of Baptist churches, uh, over 450 now, in the region that Michael mentioned, Oregon, Washington, Northern Idaho, over 450. Matter of fact, the fastest growing denomination in the Northwest over the last several decades has been Southern Baptist. I don't know, you knew that we're affiliated with Southern Baptist, we're Northwest Baptist, but affiliated with Southern Baptist. And uh, something else that you might not know, this year we voted into our convention 22 brand new churches. Nobody else is, is growing. And they, not only that, but there is no, and you should feel good about this because you're a part of this. Even as a new church plant, you give to the cooperative program. The cooperative program, all of our churches or most of our churches contribute to that and those dollars help plant churches, send missionaries, do some of the things I'm going to tell you about. But this year, 22 new churches, uh, of our 400 and maybe pushing 60 churches right now, 130 about, it was 122 before the convention, about 130 now worship in a language other than English. 
Isn't that something? Uh, we have to, last year, you helped. Now, you're a brand new church, but because of your giving, even over these last few months, you have helped churches that speak Romanian, Tagala, which is Filipino. Uh, Bhutanese is one of our newest churches, starting another one in the Seattle area. Uh, Spanish-speaking, of course, English-speaking, Russian-speaking. Uh, we have churches in Japanese and, uh, you know, all about 30 languages. But even last year, about six, six or seven languages, uh, churches were started in those languages. You're a part of all of that. And that's something you ought to feel really, really good about. The reason that we're so multilingual is because as a convention, we are very intentional about trying to find communities and peoples among whom we need to start churches. That's why you're starting a church in Moxie. There's very little evangelical work, I've been informed in Moxie, and uh, and there was no Baptist church in Moxie, and that's why you're starting a church in Moxie, because there's 5,000 people in this area, and there's no Baptist work here. And we believe, and I certainly believe, and I know your pastor does, in what we do together as Baptists, because not only are we the most intentional about starting churches, training pastors, training leaders, but we also send missionaries like nobody's business. I've been visiting with some independent churches, and they say if a person surrenders to preach in our church, we don't have a seminary to send them to. And if they send them to an independent seminary, it's very expensive. And they don't have a mission board through whom to send missionaries. If God calls you to be a missionary, the International Mission Board of our convention will send you. You don't have to go out and raise your support to be an international missionary. If you're qualified, and if you're trained and qualified to go, they will send you. There's over 4,800 missionaries that you support right now. I don't know if you knew that over 4,800 international missionaries. Our convention has a partnership in East Asia with the unreached people groups of East Asia. I was with the people group uh, last March in East Asia, the Tibetan people. No churches. Millions of people. No churches. Went to villages in which you didn't mention the name of Jesus like we sang about this morning. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They might say something like, he doesn't live here. Maybe he lives in the other village, you know, the next village. That is the way the world is. And But I say that to say you are a part of that. What you're doing here on Sunday morning is awesome. But also remember, you're connected to a worldwide movement of Christ and a worldwide kingdom. And you're a part of that uh, through what you give and what you do here. So I just want to commend you and thank you for that. One of the books that I read last year was a book by Charles Krauthammer. Charles Krauthammer is really smart. I don't know if you know him. He's on TV some as a commentator. He's so smart that whenever I disagree with him, I know I'm wrong. Okay, you know, he's that smart. And he wrote a book uh, called Things That Matter. And in that book, he tells the story of the retirement of the American manned space program. You know that we cannot now send an American into space unless he flies on a Russian rocket or someone else's rocket. But we used to have the space shuttle program, and there were three remaining space shuttles, and they were retired to different parts of the country. Krauthammer lives in Washington, D.C., and so uh, they retired the space shuttle Discovery to Washington, D.C., and he said when they flew it in on the back of a 747, you remember they used to do that, beautiful, and he said it was a beautiful day, and they flew the space shuttle in, and they circled the city three times. There were tens of thousands of people out there watching the space shuttle circle Washington, D.C. He said of that that it was a beautiful funeral march. And then he used a phrase that I think is about as sad a phrase as I've ever heard. He said of that that it was a magnificent and melancholy rebuke to constricted horizons. He said it used to be that we were about expanding our horizons. 
going further and faster and doing things better and more. But he said, it seems as though we have entered into an era of constricted horizons as a country. Now, I'm not going to comment on that, but it did get me thinking about you and the church in general. And ask the question, what is it that can constrict the horizons of God's people? What is it that could keep you from doing everything that God wants you to do? What can keep the River Church from becoming what God wants the River Church to be? What is it that can stop you as an individual Christian from doing everything that the Lord has given you? Paul said famously in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, what Paul did not mean by that is I can beat Carolina through the strength that Jesus provides. Now, maybe he did answer that prayer. I don't know. But but that that promise was not given for the ball game or not given to build your business. I can build I can do the, everything through Jesus who gives me strength. That is a missionary verse. That is a ministry verse. What Paul meant by that is 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 the mission and the work that God has given me to do. I will and I can accomplish that through the strength that God provides. I can do everything that God has given me to do. Through the strength that God provides. And the implication of that is this. There is no circumstance, therefore, that can keep me from doing what God intends me to do. Lack of money will not keep me from doing what God wants me to do. Uh, My ill health will not keep me from doing what God wants me to do. Because what God wants me to do and what God wants your church to do is not what God wants someone else to do. What God wants you to do, there's no circumstance that can keep you from doing what God wants you to do. Uh, that, that, that statement is just as true in Syria, for Christians in Syria or Iraq, as it is for us. You know, in Libya, on last Saturday, a week ago Saturday in Libya, I mean, you heard Boko Haram may have killed 2,000 people in one village this last week. Last Saturday in Libya, Islamic terrorists... While they were killing people in Paris, they were abducting 13 men from their homes in a city in Libya, and they've disappeared. Uh, Tuesday, before that, they abducted seven Christian men. So 20 Christian men disappeared. Are they alive or dead? Nobody knows. But because they were worshiping Jesus, they're gone. And yet, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whatever Jesus intends for them, they can do. The same is true with power. Not only is there no circumstance that can keep us from doing what God intends, there's no diabolical, demonic power. The devil cannot stop you from doing what God has given you to do. And therefore, if the devil cannot keep us from being and doing all that God intends, then what could keep us from doing so? I can find only one thing scripturally, and that is our own personal disobedience, our own sinfulness. To say that we are all sinners is basically to say that we have all looked up to God and shaken our fist and said, no, I've got my way, you have your way, I'm going to live life my way. That is what it means to be a sinner. When we do that, we will not accomplish everything that God intends. Well, what I want to talk to you about is how to have expanding spiritual horizons. As a nation, we may be living in an era of constricted horizons, but there's no reason the River Church or you as an individual believer ought to have constricted horizons. Your spiritual horizons ought to be expanding. And there's a great passage, a snapshot from Paul's life in the book of Acts. And I want us to look at this. We could actually look at other passages from Paul's life or some of the other apostles and probably teach the same thing. But this is a great passage. Passage in Acts chapter 21 and beginning with the 10th verse. Acts 21 verse 10. And uh, Luke and Paul and several are traveling together on their way to Jerusalem. 
And notice what it says. I'm going to read verses 10 through 14, but I'm going to stop along the way two or three times and make some explanation. So first of all, in Acts 21 verse 10, that 10th verse says, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, let's stop there. After we had been there a number of days, where were they? Well, the preceding verses tell us that Paul was in Caesarea. Uh, he was in Caesarea, which is a beautiful coastal town right on the Mediterranean. If you went and visited Israel, if you've done that or do that, you would visit Caesarea. They, the guides all take you there because there were things that happened in the New Testament there. It's where Philip lived. Paul was actually in Philip's house. And uh, it's right on the coast, and there's a lot of beautiful Roman ruins. It was named after Augustus Caesar, Caesarea, named after Augustus Caesar. That's where he was. Interesting also, it says, after we had been there a number of days. Paul was there, but who else was there? Well, the person who wrote the book of Acts, which is Luke. Exactly. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So evidently, Luke was with Paul. He was an eyewitness to what he's talking about here. Luke was with Paul. There were other people with Paul as well. You know, before I read the Bible, I thought Paul was one of these guys who didn't need anybody else. You know, he could go plant churches. He could go do things. He didn't need anybody else. Michael will tell you, to plant a church, you need others. Okay? You need other people. You need a team. Yeah, and, and Paul did as well. Paul never went anywhere by himself. He took Silas and Barnabas and John Mark and, and uh, Luke and, and Timothy and all kinds of different people travel with Paul. Paul always was about a team effort. And you know what? In your church, this is a brand new church, but already in the congregation here, you know that you could bring a guest with you here and you wouldn't be alone with that guest. You wouldn't have to do everything for that guest. There'd be someone who would deal with their children. If they have children, there's going to be a pastor to minister. There's going to be fellow congregants to greet them and make them feel well. And I've already found out I'm not the only Randy here. There's another Randy here this morning I met. You know, so together in a congregation, you can, uh, your witness is more compelling. Your witness is stronger because you're not by yourself. And Paul was never by himself. It also says that while there, this prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Notice what it says in verse 11. Coming over to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now let's stop there. Agabus, this prophet of God in the Holy Spirit, said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be bound. You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That's what he said. He took Paul's belt and said the owner of this belt, which is Paul, is going to be tied up and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, by the way, this is not the first time that we've heard of Agabus. If you go back uh, earlier in the book of Acts, Agabus is introduced as the man who prophesied that a famine would fall across the entire Roman world. And the Bible says, and history also tells us, during the reign of Claudius, the Roman Emperor Claudius, that famine did indeed occur. So Agabus was a true prophet of God. He'd already prophesied once, now he's prophesying in the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us. This is true. Paul, if you do this thing God has told you to do, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get hurt. Now let me ask you the question. If the prophet of God came to you and said, if you do this for Jesus, you're going to suffer for it. If you do this, 
you're going to be rejected. If you go to your neighbor, they're going to shut the door, or they're not going to... You might lose a friendship. If you go on this mission trip, it's going to cost you more than you ever thought it would. If the prophet of God came to you and said, if you do this for God, it's going to hurt you personally. What would you surmise from that? It's interesting, a lot of people would say, I've been fair warned. That means, why would God want me to get hurt? Why would God want me to suffer? And so a lot of people would say, well, then you don't go. As a matter of fact, when you look at the response of Luke and the others, that's exactly what they thought. In verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. See, there's a theology in this nation in which millions of people believe this, that God wants you healthy, wealthy, wise. God would never want you to suffer. God would never want you to be persecuted. And, uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, it, it couldn't be right for Paul to go to Jerusalem and to get hurt. Now, the only problem with that idea that God wants everybody to be happy and healthy and wealthy and all of that, the only problem with that idea, two things really, it's wrong and it's stupid, number two. Because when you read the New Testament and when you know Christian history, you know everybody that we know of whose name is well known, they paid a price. You pay a price to start a church. You pay a price to become a missionary. Hey, every place you hear on the news, like, uh, like Syria and Iraq and all, we have missionaries over there. Now, they may not be right in Syria right now. They're probably in Kurdistan is probably where they are. In that northern part of Iraq where so many refugees have gone. They're in Jordan, ministering to refugees there. In China, every place that you know of pretty much in the world that's on the news, just know there are missionaries there. That's where they are. And, you know, all of the missionaries that we know, from, these, these are people who suffered. These are people who spent their lives. As a matter of fact, Paul, of course, understood this. In the 13th verse, notice Paul's response. He said, it says, Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Sometimes in a church, you don't always agree on everything, but at the end of the day, you can all agree, the Lord's will be done. In this case, only Paul knew the right thing to do. Nobody else did. Only Paul did. But you know what? God had already spoken to Paul just like he spoke to Agabus. If you go back a page to chapter 20, and verse 22, Acts chapter 20 and verse 22, this was what Paul said to the Ephesian church when he was leaving Ephesus on his way to Caesarea. It says, And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So, the Lord had spoken to Paul. 
And yes, Agabus was right. By the way, Agabus was exactly right. What Agabus said would happen and what Paul understood would happen did indeed happen. Paul gets to Jerusalem, just to tell you the rest of the story, he gets to Jerusalem and yes, uh, basically he's handed over to the Gentiles, but by the Gentiles taking charge of him, they saved his life because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. They were going to kill him, but the Gentiles took him, protected him. As a matter of fact, they took him by night back to Caesarea, and Paul spent two years in Caesarea under arrest. In prison, basically. But what did Paul do when he was in prison in Caesarea? He testified. I mean, everywhere Paul went, he did what God had given him to do. So he's being held captive in Caesarea, and what does he do? He testifies to Felix and Festus, the Roman governors, about Jesus. He testifies to King Agrippa about Jesus. And then he appealed to Caesar, and they put him on a ship and they sent him to Rome so he could be uh, tried before Caesar. On the ship on the way to Rome, they get in a storm. The ship sinks, but Paul and everybody on the ship, they're safe. They swim safely to shore to the island of Malta. On the island of Malta, Paul is warming himself at a fire because they're cold out of the, coming out of this Mediterranean, this storm. And, he's, and this, this viper, this poisonous snake, comes out of the fire and bites Paul. And the people who see it said, surely this man must be a murderer and God is going to get him. But then he was miraculously healed and they literally said, no, this man must be God himself. And Paul said, no, 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 I'm not God. But they brought their sick to Paul and basically revival and healing broke out on the island of Malta. That's when the gospel came to Malta was when Paul got shipwrecked on Malta. Then they, took, they found another ship. They took him to Rome. While Paul was in Rome, he was held under house arrest there, we think, for about two years. And he was testifying to everybody who came. You remember how Paul led the Philippian jailer to the Lord? Uh, prior to this, when he was in prison in Philippi, he led the Philippian jailer to the Lord. There's a tradition that says that Paul would lead his jailer to Christ about every two or three days. And so they had to change jailers about every two or three days. Now what we do know is this. When Paul wrote back to the Philippian church, he was in that Roman imprisonment that happened right after this. And, uh, and he brought greetings from the saints in Rome to the church in Philippi. And among the saints from, uh, from whom he brought greetings were the saints in Caesar's household. So, Paul, what Agabus said would happen is exactly what happened. But what the result of that was, Paul testified to the Roman leaders, to the Jewish king, to Nero himself. That was who the Caesar was in those days. Nero, who murdered his wife, murdered his mother. When you went into Rome, I just read this in National Geographic a couple months ago, I didn't know it. Nero had a bronze statue of himself almost as tall as our Statue of Liberty, about a hundred feet tall. When you went into Rome in those days, that's what you saw in front of his palace, a hundred foot bronze statue of Nero. And yet today, because Nero was so wicked and so evil, today you name your sons Paul, you name your dog Nero, as someone said, (laughs) if Nero's name is mentioned at all. And yet Paul goes into that Rome with this hundred foot tall statue of Nero and what does he do? He shares the gospel and some of Nero's own household come to faith in Jesus. That's the result of Paul's obedience in going to Jerusalem just as the Holy Spirit sent him, just as God told him to do. Now I want to apply this passage with three words um, that I think are three words that typify anyone who's greatly used of God. We could use these three words, I think, of Peter. 
or David Livingston, the great missionary in Africa. But these three words, I think, help us understand the heart and the passion and the drive of a person like Paul. But I would say even ordinary people like you and me. These three words ought to increasingly typify our life. How could Paul do what he did? I would say, number one, Paul had this sense of destiny. A sense of destiny, a sense of purpose would be another word. But destiny, I love that word destiny. What that means is Paul understood, my life matters. I'm put here on earth for a reason. I have a destiny. Someone said the thing we ought fear most is not failure. We ought fear succeeding at something that doesn't matter. There's a lot of people that spend their life, their money, their time, all of their efforts trying to build or do things that don't matter, that don't bring glory to God. Paul had this sense of destiny. He knew that his life mattered. And so, it didn't matter where you put him, in the jail cell or out on the road somewhere on the way to his next preaching assignment, whatever Paul was doing, he understood there was a purpose behind it. It mattered. What I would say to you is this. There is a purpose and a destiny for the life of every single one of us in this room. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. You have a destiny. Don't don't ever let anyone convince you anything other than that. As a matter of fact, you could make a decision today that would change everything. Everything. About your family, about your own life. I love to read history, and I've been reading a series of history books. I'm finished with this series by Lawrence Burgreen. One was on Magellan and his terrifying circumnavigation of the globe. He was the first one to circumnavigate the globe. He actually died en route, but one of his ships made it. One was on Christopher Columbus. One was on Marco Polo. I love stuff like that. I learned something in the book on Christopher Columbus and Magellan I had never heard before. When, uh, when Columbus returned from his first voyage to the New World, now Columbus was all about expanding horizons, you know. He didn't make one voyage, he made four voyages to the New World. He never got to where he wanted to go, he never knew where he was. But he accomplished far more than he ever understood, as, by the way. Well, when he returned in 1494, 1492, remember Columbus sailed the ocean blue, in 1494, two years later, the Pope made a decision. The Pope's same was Alexander VI, and Alexander VI divided the world in two, basically. Gave the west to Spain and the east to Portugal, because only the Portuguese and the Spanish were sending out ships to explore the world. So he said, Spain, you've got to stay to the west. Portugal, you can go east. Now, everything broke down after Magellan circumnavigated the globe. 27 years later, one of Magellan's ships shows back up. Now they know you can get west by sailing east, and vice versa. But at that time, Spanish ships all had to be pointing west, Portuguese east. How the line drawn cut through one landmass in our hemisphere, and that is the modern nation of Brazil. Now, if you know anything about South America, you know that's really, really significant, that decision of the Pope, because everybody south of us speaks Spanish, except Brazil. They speak Portuguese. Because the Pope said that territory belongs to Portugal. Now, that decision broke down, as I said, 27, 28 years later, but that decision largely gave us the Spanish-speaking world today, and the Catholic world, by the way, Now, the Portuguese, to get to Africa, they just had to sail down the coast. So, there are four Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa. Spain had to go all the way around the world to get back to Africa. My wife and I, on a mission trip once, went to southwest India, the state of Kerala. That's where Vasco da Gama, a Portuguese sailor, sailed around Africa, 1498, landed in India. If you go there, there's all this... (coughs) 
Catholic, especially background from Portuguese Catholics that settled that part of India. That one decision really gave us the world much as it is today, especially the Spanish-speaking, the Portuguese-speaking, and the Catholic world. Now, you might say, but I'm not the Pope. You know, I don't make decisions that will affect history like that 500 years later. No, probably not, but what you do is this. You, you have a family. You have kids. You have friends. You have grandkids. You have spouse. You have co-workers, classmates. And the things we do will affect the people we love most incredibly. I mean, we care that our legacy 100 and 200 years from now maybe will still live on in some way through the lives that we touched. But don't you really, really care about your own kids, your own grandkids, your own best friends? The decisions we make can radically, hugely affect them. Let me ask you this. Have you ever shared your own personal testimony with your family? With your kids, with your grandkids? Have you ever told them, this is how I came to faith in Jesus? I love the one-minute testimony that Michael led you to do this morning. Share the testimony of what Jesus has done in your life with your own family. What I've learned is most people have never done that. I was actually in a church in Spokane just a couple of months ago, and the pastor came and said, I've never done that with my kids. You know, so I know how rare it is for even us as preachers to talk in a personal way about our faith and our walk, sometimes even with our own kids. I would urge you to make the decision to share with your friend, girls, share with your friend, share with your children, share with your grandchildren. This is why I'm a follower of Jesus. This is what happened to me. Uh, my dad was born in Washington in Anatone. Anatone's probably not too far. Um, he, uh, my grandma was born in Spokane, and my grandpa Newport. And uh, my grandparents met in Spokane in 1937. Here's how it happened. It was, it was Sunday. It was the spring of 1937. And, uh, and, and my grandpa's family, they were loggers. I was all, my dad was a sawmill worker, real sawmill and loggers and all that. And he, they came in from the sticks to go to church on Sunday. Not their church, but it was, they were in Spokane. They were in the city. So they went to church. They were singing the hymn at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And there was a young woman who was a member of that church who heard this beautiful, unfamiliar voice. She looked down. She said it was love at first sight. It was Everett Adams. He was singing at the cross. They met that morning. He came back on Easter Sunday. That's why I know it was spring. And their first date was he took her to church on Easter Sunday in that church in Spokane. They were married Christmas, December 21st of that year, 1937. They met in that church. My wife and I, about, oh, about a year ago now, we were in uh, Baker City, Oregon. And, I, and that's not too far from Cove and LeGrand. So I wanted to take her where my mom grew up. And we drove by the Calvary Baptist Church. And I remembered, that's where my parents were saved. That's where they were baptized. That's where they were married. And that is actually where they actually met as well. They met in that church. They were baptized and they were married in that church. It's part of our family story. I met my wife in the Central Baptist Church of Bakersfield, California. I walked in on a Wednesday night of all things. There was this beautiful, beautiful woman in a yellow dress and golden hair and a summer tan. Great combination. I said, who is that? And the guy with me said, that's Paula Ketchum, but don't even think about it. <laughs> 
direct quote. I thought about it a year and a half later. We were married. So that's part of our family story is how my parents met, my grandparents met, and the role of the church in the life of our family almost a century now. My kids know that story. They know what it means. It made a difference in how they dated and how they chose the one that they would marry. The oldest is married now. I say that to say, share that story. You have a destiny. Paul had a destiny. He understood that what he said and what he did mattered. And that's why the threat of persecution didn't stop him. Now the second word is the word opportunity. Uh, Everything for Paul provided opportunity. So you could say, if you go this place, if you do this thing, you're going to suffer. You're going to get hurt. But what Paul understood was, it's when I'm in prison that I'm writing the New Testament. You know, a lot of what Paul wrote, he wrote from a jail cell. It's when I'm in jail that I testify to the, to the, uh, to the jailers and others who come to see me. Uh, it didn't matter. Uh, everything for Paul provided opportunity. The kingdom of God largely expands and grows along this line of opportunity. So, back to the decision of the Pope and Columbus and those guys. The Catholic world is where it is today because those explorers took with them priests. Did you know when Columbus came here, he had priests on his ship? One of his great ambitions was to Catholicize or Christianize the world. And he was serious about it. He talked about it. Uh, Magellan was the same way. Magellan, who circumnavigated the globe, when he went around South America, he baptized a South American Indian, brought him on the ship, wanted to take him back to Europe and show him off, but they both died before they got there. But when he got to the Philippines, somewhere in the area of the Philippines, he baptized 2,000 people. Magellan did. Now, there's no, we don't know of a community there that we can trace that to, but what we do know is in Macau, and, uh, and like I said, in India and other parts, there are Catholic Christians there as a result of what those explorers did. Now, you, so, in other words, the gospel went because it had opportunity to go because that's where the ships were going. The same is true of Protestant missions. Do any of you know the name William Carey? Okay, William Carey is the founder of the modern mission movement. Uh, let me, you ought to know a little bit about William Carey. He was a British Baptist uh, when they weren't sending missionaries. But William Carey got convicted that Baptists need to send missionaries. Christians need to send missionaries. So he went to India from Great Britain. William Carey did in 1793. However, was William Carey the first British person to go to India? No. The British East India Company was founded in 1600. They were doing business back and forth with India. And the British East India Company had control of India by 1757. And it was almost 40 years later the first missionary shows up. The missionaries go where opportunity presents itself. Why do we have missionaries in China today? Because they figured out about 25 years ago, you don't have to have missionary on your visa to be a missionary. (laughs) You can go as a business person. You can go as a teacher. And that's why we have missionaries in Afghanistan, okay? In Iraq, in Yemen, in these places. They're not there with missionary on their passport. They're there as Christians. They're doing hospital work, or they're doing all kinds of uh, things, business and travel agencies and all kinds of things, uh, because if you have the opportunity, you give a person the opportunity to go and some people will go. That's why we're doing a partnership in East Asia. If you have the opportunity to go to East Asia, somebody will go. Will everybody go? No. It's like when a church does evangelism training. If you train the church to share the gospel, does that mean everybody will learn? No, but some will. Does that mean everybody will share? No, but some will. More will 
because of the training. If, if, if Michael says, you know, on Saturday, this is what we want to do. We want to go and we want to do this thing in the community. We want to take advantage of this opportunity. Is everybody going to show up? Probably not. Although a bigger percentage of you will show up than in most churches, because that's the way new churches are. You're just more, more motivated, you know, so a lot of you will show up. Not everybody will, but nobody would if the opportunity wasn't presented. Opportunity. In your families, always look, in the church, always look at how to provide opportunity to love this community. The big question for your church is not how do we grow. The big question is how do we love this community? What are the needs here? How do we connect with those needs? How do we show these people God loves them? Always be looking for opportunities to do that. Now, for my wife and I, one of the things we wanted for our boys is we wanted them to have a heart for the lost people of the world. So we took them on mission trips. Mission trips were an opportunity to, uh, for God to work in their heart. We took them to central Mexico. We took them to Bangladesh. Okay. We took them to Peru. They've been to China, uh, South Korea, our oldest. These experiences changed their lives. Let me tell you one about Bangladesh. Because Bangladesh is halfway across the world. It's extremely poor. It's mostly Islamic. Uh, we were in a city of 25 square miles. How many square miles does Moxie have? You, you probably have 10. You've got quite a few square miles. 25 square miles, 14 million people in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Unbelievable. So there we are with our boys. They were 13 and 15. The very first day, I'm with our youngest. My wife's with the oldest. We switch kids every day. We went and visited people who had responded to a newspaper ad asking for a copy of the books of Moses. Because Muslims believe Moses is a prophet. They like the first five books of the Old Testament. So we would go and we would give that to them and we would use that to share the gospel. The very first person my youngest son and I visited was a man named Amit. Amit said, after an hour, he said, if I do what you want me to do, I might get killed. Which was a real possibility. And so we talked about that. We talked about martyrdom and suffering and persecution. And is Jesus worth it? And then I asked my 13-year-old son, Luke, to pray for Amit. I wish you could have heard his prayer. Someone asked me when we got back, they said, well, did it cost a lot of money to take your kids to Bangladesh? I said, oh yeah, it's like a year's tuition at Oklahoma Baptist University, which is where they go to school. I said, but so what? We didn't have car payments. We had no debts at all other than our house. We had saved for that because our ambition for our kids was not simply that they get a good education and, and, and pay for themselves, but we want them to have a heart shaped by God. And so we sought different ways. We, we made sure they knew how to share Jesus by the time they were about 5th, 6th grade. We wanted to give them opportunities to grow in their faith. So I would say always be looking, and you have a great opportunity in a brand new church, always be looking at ways to give these kids opportunities to learn how to share Jesus, how to, how to serve, how to love people. Kids will do things adults won't do. If a kid will do it, half the adults will do it, okay? So always be looking at ways to expand opportunity to help your church love this community and share Jesus in this community. So destiny, opportunity, responsibility. Paul had this overwhelming sense of responsibility. Why would he go to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to be imprisoned? Because he felt responsible. He, he knew God told him to go. And so that made him responsible. But Paul also elsewhere said, I am the chief of sinners. There's no one who's a bigger sinner than me. I killed Christians. Paul hunted Christians down to their imprisonment and death before he was saved. He orphaned 
children. Remember, Paul was there when they stoned Stephen to death. Now, I don't know if Stephen had a wife and kids, but if he did, he left a widow and orphans, and Paul was complicit. And that's just one example among others that Paul himself testified to. So he felt this huge sense of responsibility. He knew if the grace of God and the forgiveness and mercy of God are so great that it could save him, anybody could be saved. And so nothing would keep him from going to the vilest of the vile and the furthest of, of the lost and share with them. He felt this sense of responsibility. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? I think you do. Because you wouldn't do what you're doing if you didn't. You, Many of you, you live in Moxie, and that's why you're a part of it. You're going to church in Yakima, but if you're starting a church in Moxie, you want to reach your own neighbors. You want to reach your own community. You feel that sense of responsibility. I would just urge upon you always to, to uh, stir up that desire and that sense of responsibility for this town. Because if you don't share Jesus with this town, who will? It's not that there aren't other believers in other churches. There are a few but too few. Too few. Well, I grew up in Whitefish, Montana. Not so unlike Moxie. Now, it's a different type of community, but it's about the same size. At that time, it was probably 3,500 in town, but quite a few more around the town. Small town, though. And uh, nobody ever came to visit my family. Except Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. My brother died when he was 14, and we weren't in church. What do you do when, when you have a death in your family and you don't have... Hey, if you, if you keep your eyes open to things like that in this town, you'll have a ministry. People who, have, who are suffering, people who are hurting, people who have something. Just go and say, I heard what happened. I'm, I'm from the River Church. We just want to pray for you. We're, we're sorry. We want to see if there's anything we can do. You know who did that for my family? The Mormons. And so, a Mormon... Man and their church did my brother's funeral. And then they sent us their missionaries, and fortunately we knew the Bible well enough that this was crazy. You know, this was not biblical at all. And we sought out a church, and we wound up attending the First Baptist Church of Whitefish, Montana, where I was baptized. Um, you know, my town had too few Bible-preaching churches. Just a few. We had more bars than churches. I think that's literally true. I've always said that. I think it's probably true. Uh, Moxie doesn't have too many churches. You know that. And so I, I pray you, you feel that sense of responsibility and that, you'll, uh, that you'll, you'll wear it every day as Jesus puts you wherever he does to share Christ, to love people, just to say a good word about Jesus and about, about your church. And one by one, you'll see God change lives in this community. And the long story short, I, I hesitate because I... Let me tell you one other, other story. Uh, it's a personal story about our family. Because the last church I pastored, um, my wife's mother was born there. That was in 1937 as well. She was born in McAllister, Oklahoma. And uh, I'd never been to Oklahoma before. But this church called and asked if I would come. And I did. And they called me and we went. And after we went... My wife's mother told my wife and I why she was born in that town. She lived out in California. But she was born there because her great-grandfather committed a murder, and the state penitentiary was in that town, and the family moved there to be near the killer in the prison. 
And, like often happens, he actually got a pardon from the governor in 1941. We didn't know any of this. We knew nothing of this. She didn't know about the great-great, it's her great-great-grandfather, didn't know about any of this. So we do a little research. What we discovered was he was the first murderer pardoned in Oklahoma. It was on December 2nd, 1941. And uh, as often happens, when a person gets out of prison, the family leaves town. So when you're ministering to inmate families you know that they're very, very poor, they're, they're ashamed, and they're going to leave town You know, as soon as the guy gets out of prison. In fact, they're supposed to. Have you ever had this wicked thought? Don't have this wicked thought, okay? As you're trying to reach people, don't ask the question, what could this person ever do for the church? They don't have the gifts, the money, the whatever. Don't ever ask that question because you just don't know. You just don't know. And, and, and God loves everybody. So, Here's what I learned. I got a copy of the pardon document. And on that pardon document, it was just two pages, there was a paragraph from a letter written by the pastor of the First Baptist Church, my predecessor. His name was A.A. A. Duncan. And A.A. A. Duncan wrote on behalf of my wife's great-great-grandfather saying that he did not drink intoxicating liquor and he had a spotless prison record and he felt he was worthy of the pardon, and he got the pardon. I began to do a little research, and I've discovered that church ministered to my wife's family, poor as dirt as they were, and her grandmother was baptized and was a member of that church when we went there, though she'd been dead 10 years. That's why old churches are. You can still be a member, and you were dead 10 years, okay? That pastor ministered to that poor family. They moved to Dallas in the, like 1943 or so. Then they moved to Bakersfield, California in 1944, 1945. That's where my wife was born and grew up. And, uh, and then 53 years later, she moved back to town as the wife of the pastor of the church. That church that had ministered to her poor family with the killer in prison the church that ministered to them, not knowing whatever that family could ever do for them. 53 years later, the best pastor's wife they ever had <laughs> moved back to serve them. So, you know what? We, we have no idea 50 years from now what we're doing today and what it's going to mean in Moxie and in the kingdom 50 years from now, but I can promise you, if you stay at the task and you feel a sense of destiny and responsibility and you seize opportunities, God's going to do some of those things. And A.A. A. Duncan does not know, unless Jesus told him in heaven already, he doesn't know what God did, but God did a great work. Let me pray for you, and then Michael's going to come and close us out. There may be someone here you need to make a decision. There may even be someone here who's not yet said yes to Jesus. You haven't believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead to save you. Today, you can say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and ask him into your life. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But let's stand together. I want to lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you this day for all that you've done for us. You've done so much more than we know. Uh, a lot of what you did for us, you did uh, decades ago through our great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. We don't even know their names. But decisions that they made brought us to where we are today. Lord, help each of us to have that same sense that our life matters. And even if they're going to put us in prison for our faith, it's all right. It's all right. If we do it for Jesus and with Jesus, it's all right.
Father, give us the courage today, every person here, to say yes to Jesus in whatever way you would lead us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Randy. As the music plays, um, it's an opportunity for you to respond. If there's anything that God has put on your heart in the way that you need to respond, I encourage you to do that. And come forward if you want want me to pray for you or with you, or you want to make your decision public. Sing along. Lord, with all my heart, worship.